Listener Production. In this episode of The Briefing, the journalist who asked the now famous questions. Do you know the official cash rate off the top of your head? So that's Stella Todorovic. She's the Network 10 journal who tripped up Anthony Albanese. We're going to ask her what made her ask those questions that have become the biggest story of the election campaign so far. I just started thinking, well, I'm wondering if he knows the nitty-gritty. And as well as Stella, we're also going to speak to the veteran political journo, Phil Curry. He says this is the worst campaign gaffe he's ever seen, and his newspaper, the Australian Financial Review, have just done a series of focus groups on Albo. They have it so wildly wrong. It was a big clangor. I haven't seen one that big um, in eight campaigns I've covered. The results of those focus groups make for pretty grim listening for Labor supporters. That's all in the second half of this briefing. First, here are today's headlines with Jan Fran. It is Easter Thursday, the 14th of April. And staying with gotcha questions. The answer to one of them yesterday was Google it. Mate, So that came from Adam Band, who is um, the Greens leader. He was giving an address to the press club. And he was asked a gotcha question from a journalist called Ron Meisen from the Australian Financial Review. He was asked a question about something called the wage price index. This is what he said. What's the current WPI? Well, <laughs> Google it, mate. <laughs> so Adam Bant went on to say that elections are becoming a fact-checking exercise rather than a contest of ideas. And I think for a lot of people who didn't like the Albo gotcha moment, which I've seen a lot of comments in our feed of people who just think it's the media um, overhyping this, I think Adam Bant's response was probably quite cathartic yesterday. Yeah, well, the one thing that we um, we didn't play you, which came right after Adam Bant said, Google it, mate, was a round of applause from the audience. <laughs> so <laughs> they're at least on his side. I must say, I'm not a huge fan of the gotcha questions, not when they're asked to elbow and not when they were asked to Scott Morrison in February about the price of bread necessarily. I don't really think our leaders need to be housing random facts in their brain. And I thoroughly hope that that the Adam Bant response kind of just puts a kibosh on it. Like, we're done. Mm, Yeah, I think it was probably a stretch too far after we'd already had a big one this week for another one. People's patience had worn thin. But the questions Albo asks, I don't see them as random facts. I see them as crucial economic variables when you're promising wage growth and understanding the cost of living. Um, But we're going to get deeper into that discussion in our briefing topic. There's been a a controversy uh, for the Liberal Party. Uh, A candidate who was handpicked by Scott Morrison has been forced to apologise for her tweets about transgender surgery. Yeah, so this is the candidate for Warringah. Her name is Catherine Deaves. Um, She wrote that she would not stand for seeing vulnerable children surgically mutilated and sterilised. She wrote that alongside a photo of a teenager who'd undergone breast removal surgery. In his response to that controversy, the PM seems to have walked back his support for a bill. It was put forward by a Tasmanian Liberal senator and the bill was to ban trans women from women's sports. Uh, He did emphasise, after showing some early support for it, that, look, it's a private member's bill, it's not a Liberal Party policy. He has withdrawn and apologised for those views. If I was referring to the bill that has been brought forward by Senator Chandler, it's a private member's bill. The government doesn't have any plans uh, for that to be a government bill. 
Yeah, he didn't walk back his own support for the bill. The Prime Minister said his views on that are well known, but it did seem from a party point of view he did wind that back a little bit after this controversy from the Warringah candidate. It is a wee bit embarrassing um, for the coalition. Scott Morrison handpicked this woman and um, endorsed her in the seat of Warringah, which is, of course, the seat that uh, independent MPs Ali Stegall won over Tony Abbott. Uh, so not having known a, a, about some of her past comments, you know, it doesn't look good. And I think Zali's really seized on that moment, asking the Prime Minister to disendorse her. Mm. So we'll see what happens. And Australia's Minister for the Pacific has visited the Solomon Islands to urge the island nation not to sign a security deal with China. Yeah, so this is a, a rather unusual move, particularly during an election campaign. But Zed Sezelja uh, travelled to Honiara this week. He met with the Solomon's PM, Manessa Sogavare, and basically just told him outright, using some pretty strong language, that Australia did not want to see the Solomons sign this deal with China. We've had a dialogue. Uh, we've expressed uh, our view and our concern. Yeah, so that's the Senator Sassel just speaking yesterday. So under the agreement, Beijing can use the Solomons as a base for its Navy ships and defence personnel. Now, China's spent billions of dollars of infrastructure on the Solomon Islands and says it wants to secure the agreement to protect those investments. So, you know, Australia's up against the billions of dollars of China flowing into mm -hmm. Honiara and the Solomon Islands. Um, I think that's going to be a pretty tough argument for us to win. Yeah. And look, this is a pretty big story because it's not just Australia that's applying the pressure on the Solomon Islands to not sign this deal. It's also the United States um, and it's also uh, New Zealand. So there's a bit of sort of regional pressure being put on the Solomons. But the fact is that we have no jurisdiction over what the Solomon Islands say and do and who they sign deals with. They're a sovereign nation. We've acknowledged that many, many times. And if they want to go ahead and sign this deal with China, then what that could essentially mean is that we may see Chinese Navy ships docked less than 2,000 kilometres off the Australian coast. And airports around the country are expecting long queues again today as Australians prepare to travel around the country for the first holiday break since all travel restrictions were eased. Yeah, you've seen those long snaking lines in airports on the news, no doubt. Um, the airlines are urging passengers to arrive early because those queues are not going anywhere. Uh, Nick McIntosh from the Transport Workers Union told the ABC that all this is happening because airlines and airports are operating on skeleton staff. If you outsource your most experienced part of the workforce, at some point that's going to come back to bite you. Yeah, I don't know if that's the core issue. I think it's more that a lot of the security staff have been close contacts of COVID cases. Mm, yeah, there is also the other issue that some aviation staff that have sort of permanently left the industry had not been replaced. So there's, you know, there's a number of factors that seem to be coming together to create this this clog. But look, if you're travelling around Australia, you know, Queensland and WA, they're relaxing a range of COVID-19 restrictions kicking in from midnight tonight in WA, only household or intimate contacts of a positive case will be considered close contacts and will need to isolate. I know the East Coast has, you know, been there for a while, but that does bring WA into line with the rest of the country. Yep, and Queensland are scrapping requirements to check in at hospitality venues, but you'll still need to scan codes at hospitals, healthcare centres and aged care homes. Yeah, and if you're lurking around Sydney Airport today, I only mentioned Sydney because it's a big one. It's supposed to be the biggest day of people travelling since the pandemic. 80,000 
people. Get there early, pack mm. your suitcase nice and tight. Well, yeah, Sydney Airport's been having a shocker for the last week. It's just been pandemonium with uh, lines going right out into the car park to get through security. I think the question, that's going to happen again, almost no doubt by the looks of things. The question is mm. how the other airports around the country go. Will they have the same problems? And to overseas news now, and Russia says that it is on the verge of capturing the Ukraine city of Mariupol. Now, Russia's Defence Ministry has issued this statement overnight. They say that more than a 1,000 Ukrainian troops defending the city surrendered this week and that that clears the way for Moscow to claim the city. Yeah, this would be the first significant victory for Vladimir Putin's troops since uh, the invasion began on February 24. Um, Russia sees Mariupol as a critical link between Russia's south and east and provides a corridor to the Russian-occupied Crimea and Moscow-backed territories in Donbass. And the iconic blue guitar that Kurt Cobain played in the music video for Smells Like Teen Spirit is up for sale. So yes, that is that famous guitar riff. So this guitar is going under the hammer at Julian's Auctions in New York next month. It's a 1969 Fender Mustang. It's blue. Expected to get around a million dollars. I mean, I thought it might have gotten even more. I guess we'll find out. <laughs> Not I that know, I'm going to bid. Still a, <laughs> yeah, none of us can afford it. Don't worry about that. Still a million dollars for a guitar. It is one of the most iconic guitar riffs. Is it too much to say ever? Yeah, I'd say it's right up there with Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple from the 70s. Well, I mean, the video's been viewed more than 1.4 billion times on mm. YouTube. Not bad for a music video that was made in the 90s. The guitar is going to go up for auction in New York and online May 20 to 22. If you have a cool million lying around, maybe you might want to put that date in your calendar. Hey, just a question for you on that. Would you pay more for the guitar in the video clip or the guitar that he actually recorded the riff with? Oh, that's a good question. Look, I probably wouldn't pay for either, to be completely honest with you. I just <laughs> admire them from afar. <laughs> <laughs> Let someone else pay the money. Put it yeah. in a museum, please. All right, Jan, uh, we'll catch you next week. We're going to wade deeper into uh, the gotcha moment that everyone's talking about. Obviously, it's a bit divisive, even between uh, you and I. Antoinette Latouf is going to join me for this one. Now, Antoinette Latouf, part of me doesn't even want to play this audio again because mm. it's so awkward and it has been played a fair bit already. Yeah, I hear you, but it's such an important part of this story. You mentioned the Reserve Bank earlier. Do you know the official cash rate off the top of your head? Oh, look, we, we can do the old, uh, old Q&A stuff over 50 but different over, over 50, 50 different figures. What's the national unemployment rate? National unemployment rate at the moment is, uh, sorry, I'm not sure what it is. So those are the pretty simple questions put to the opposition leader on day one of the campaign trail. And this is when all press eyes and even when regular Australians are most likely to pay attention to politics. Mm. So we're going to talk about it more to really discuss what it means. And I, I address this in the debriefing video on our Instagram and I've copped a bit of a Pushback in the comments, one person said, like, I agree, however, it's a gotcha moment for the media rather than the, the general public. Another person told me to do better, um, <laughs> that my analysis was misguided at best and shallow at worst, that all the people affected by floods, you know, for those people, this, this election will be fought on climate change. 
But you know what, Tom, I'm with you. And, and I made similar comments on social media and also got that kind of criticism of, oh, it's just one moment and what about this and what about that? But I think it's quite significant. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, for a lot of people, climate change is, is a huge election issue. But for the swinging voters in the middle, the people who might actually shift from Liberal to Labor or Labor to, to Coalition... It's more about the economy and they're the people that decide elections. Yeah, we know climate change policy does not win elections. Economic management does. And this was a big, huge error on day one of the campaign trail. We're going to get to Phil Corey, a veteran political journo, and the focus group stuff he talks about is really interesting. But let's actually go to the journalist who asked the question of Anthony Albanese, Stella Todorovic. She's a political reporter for Network 10. Stella, thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing. Can you believe that the questions you asked have created the biggest talking point of the election campaign so far? I absolutely can't. However, it was a pretty simple question and one that Anthony Albanese probably should have been able to answer. (laughs) What was your thought process in coming up with these questions? Like, did you expect him not to know? You must have because you asked it. The way that I ask my questions at press conferences is I listen. So when he started talking about the Reserve Bank and their position on wages and wage stagnation and his whole policy platform being, well, I want to raise wages, I just started thinking, well, I'm wondering if he knows the nitty gritty because he's saying that he wants to be the next Prime Minister. He says he does have an economic outlook for Australia's future. And so I just thought, well, you know, I'll just ask him if he knows the cash rate. And... um, I actually figured that he would, seeing as it it hasn't changed, because my follow-up question was, what will a Labor government do to assist Australians when interest rates inevitably rise come June if you're Prime Minister to help them with their higher mortgages? It was kind of meant to be a double barrel, but when I first said it, he then jumped in and said, you know, we're not going to, you know, we can play 20 questions or 50 questions, Mm. and I just Mm. kind of went, okay, well, you won't answer that clearly don't know. I'm going to go to the second part of my question, which is what Australians are genuinely going to be facing come June and what would you do as Prime Minister? And he's talking about cost of living. He's talking about, you know, a Labor government would do this. We're going to raise wages. We're going to assist with cost of living. We're going to create more jobs. And I just kind of thought, all right, well, let's see if he can, you know, answer these questions about interest rates as well. And when it comes to the budget, it's been just over two weeks since that budget was handed down. And not being able to answer my question about the cash rate actually left Anthony Albanese exposed to be asked about, well, okay, do you know the unemployment rate? And he just couldn't say it off the top of his hand. And maybe that was because maybe he did know it and maybe he was just caught off guard because he wasn't expecting it. As soon as he couldn't answer the unemployment, I just went, oh, my God, (laughs) this is not good for him. Did you know it was going to become a massive story? I did. I saw it on his face. I think he realised. Katie Gallagher came up. One of the journalists said, well, can the shadow finance minister please come to the microphone? And She looked like she was answering questions in in a high school math test. She looks so rattled and a little unsure herself. Yes, yeah, she, she did hesitate a little bit, but I do think that she was also caught off guard um, yeah. by being asked to come because she wasn't part of that official press mm. conference that day. She was just sort of travelling along with them and wasn't speaking and, you know, 
I'm sure with these things, every politician likes to sort of get their head in the game and maybe she just didn't feel like she'd done that. She knew she'd be showing, showing him up, up as well. Yeah. Exactly, and I'm sure that would be a little bit uncomfortable with the leader of your party and then you sort of stand up and answer the questions correctly. <laughs> that was Stella Todorovic from 10 News First. She's their political reporter. But for a longer view, let's bring in Phil Curry from the Australian Financial Review. He's covered eight elections. And we're going to get not just his take, but also what swinging voters have been telling him in the focus groups his paper has done this week. Phil, thanks for joining us. Do you think for Albanese this was a failure of recall or do you think not knowing those numbers reveals a deeper blind spot on understanding or even having an interest in the economy and how it works? I think it was a failure of recall. Um, you know, I, I'm pretty sure he sort of knew them, but you could see the wheels of fear spinning in his head as, as he just couldn't remember it. I don't know if he knew the cash rate, the Reserve mm. Bank cash rate, but he certainly would have known the unemployment rate. And that's such a fundamental number in terms of, you know, what Labor is, is sort of alleging against the government in terms of its incompetence and what the government's alleging against Labor in terms of its incompetence. So to have it so wildly wrong, it, 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 was, a, it was a big clanger. I haven't seen one that big um, in eight campaigns I've covered. Whoa, it's the biggest one you've ever seen. Yeah, in terms of a one-day gaffe, yeah. I mean, there was John Houston and the birthday cake. Yeah. That was pretty That was bad, different, though. He just gave a sort of a complex, boring answer, right? Well, wasn't... He, he wasn't able to answer it either. Yeah, that's right. I mean, all the, the, the yeah, nothing's ever the same, but there are moments, you know, there was... Paul Keating in the cake shop, which uh, I, I was too young, I didn't cover that, but he went to a cake shop and the bloke turned out to be a Liberal voter and, and the whole thing blew up in their face because um, they didn't do their advance properly. But uh, look, there's been the odd one, but this was just spectacular. For me, it's a little bit hard to believe that it was momentary failure of mm. recall because, mm. you know, core to their promise of lifting wages is understanding how tight the labour market is. So you, mm. you absolutely need to know that to understand if and when wages are going to go up. And then, you mm. know, on the on the cash rate, it's so central to cost of living. And I, I know what it's like when I don't know something. It's usually because I have a sort of a general vagueness about the area, yeah. so I can't pinpoint it. But when I truly understand the systems and the way different metrics interact, I tend to know the magnitude of the metrics. That's right. He didn't even know the magnitude. And I think Scott Morrison made that point. He said, yeah, look, if he said 3.8 or 4.1, fair enough. But to say 5.4 yeah. just shows just a complete disengagement. And, and it undermines this sort of thing that we're all about the cost of living and we're cognizant of rising interest rates and wages rises that need to be tied to low unemployment and stuff. Yeah, look, there's, there's no way of spinning it. It's just a ripper. I do wonder politicians, media, the Twitterati, they've loved talking about mm. this. I do wonder how much of an impact it's having on the general public and how much they're talking about it over yep. over a drink or over dinner. Do you think it's something people are going, oh, that's a terrible marker for a, a yeah. potential future leader? Look, it's a really good point, and I think my answer is yes. Look, I, I, I turned off Twitter 18 months ago. I find it's mm. the most corrupt, corrosive influence for political journalists. We did a bunch of focus groups. These are undecided voters in the suburbs. These are the people who actually will decide the election. They're mm. not the Twitter people. And I made the guys and girls in my office sit down and watch these focus groups and say, this is the reality, not Twitter. And it, it's a much different thing, but I can tell you they were all talking about elbows slip up. It's an and, easy one to talk about. Um, we were discussing off-air, Antoinette and I, about the Prime Minister's controversy over Michael Tauk, and I was arguing that that's something that there's a few articles in the paper, but it's sort of will disappear and maybe not cut outside of the bubble. But if you look on Twitter, it's a constant narrative. And yeah, whereas exactly. Albo's yeah. stuff up is so much more relatable to people's 
daily lives and just an easier, simpler thing to talk about. Oh, can you believe this guy didn't know this? Yeah, that's right, and, and, and you're dead right. It was bread and butter stuff, and, and these, you know, suburban voters, you know, we're all talking about it, thought it was really bad. Like, yeah, there, there was a level of understanding. Look, the only thing that I dislike more than politicians are journos, and there was a bit of sort of disdain for this pop quiz type questioning is gotcha stuff, but at the same time, mm. they, they, they were pretty down on him for not being able to know these things. And it, it goes to aptitude and competency. The problem is that when an election campaign starts, everything becomes much more serious. So Albo's been running around the country for two and a half years, as opposition leaders do, doing press conferences nearly every day, you know, from Townsville to Tasmania and so forth. And they sort of think that makes them match fit. But but what he's been doing for two and a half years is basically running around the country just sort of poking holes at the government's COVID mm-hmm. response and levelling criticisms at the flood response and, you know, taking the odd question from, you know, the Townsville Bulletin or something like that. That is not match fit. That is not making match fit the no. election campaign. He hasn't been forensically questioned about anything. No. Suddenly everything you've been saying and doing matters and will matter because you could be Prime Minister in five weeks. And the blowtorch and the repetitive nature of the questioning and Labor looks very vulnerable all of a sudden. And I think this election is far from over, I would suggest. So, Phil, you said you've covered eight federal elections. Mm. You did also say that this is the biggest gaffe you've ever seen, but considering the way other gaffes have played out in other elections, what's your prediction on this one? Obviously, the only good thing about it was that it happened in the first week. Only good yeah. thing for Labor is that there's five more weeks of potential stuff-ups from mm. the other side or or wins for them. How do you think this one's going to be remembered come election day? Oh, I think it'll be front and centre. What we're picking up is that people are unimpressed with both leaders, but they're less unimpressed with Morrison than they are Albanese. Albanese is invisible. He hasn't defined himself. I was quite astounded last night listening to this this, this focus group research. Um, oh, I don't know anything about him. I don't know his policies. When he starts talking, I, I get bored and walk away. Yeah, as they say in politics, you can't fatten a pig on market day. You have to define yourself in the years leading up to an election. Mm-hmm. People at least have to know what your values and your philosophies and your principles are, uh, even if you have a small policy agenda. And the trouble is, yes, it, I think on balance it was a good thing for Labor. It happened early in the campaign, but it also happened on, on the day a lot of people tune in for the first time. It will stay better in the mind of a lot of voters who for the first time took a look at him. They say... The first three days in the last week of the campaign is when the most attention is focused on it. It can only be a negative, but just to what extent, we, we just won't know until um, you know, the night of May 21. In terms of the, the bigger picture, and we look at things like Scott Morrison being in Hawaii at the time of the bushfires, mm. can it really come down to this moment? No, well, this moment will have an influence, but it won't be the sole determinant. And as you said, it, it's incredible how many people are now raising the bushfires again, just how terribly damaging that was for Morrison, the, the trip to Hawaii. Um, that was the worst thing ever. That was mm. much worse than what Albanese did this week. Yes. And that's just stuck to him like Chewy to a blanket. I can't remember an election where the two leaders have been so underwhelming. And, <laughs> and it's really, it, it really, in the minds of voters, and it's really going to be the least underwhelming leader's going to win. So that's Phil Corey from the Australian Financial Review and the results of their focus groups are in their paper today. Do you feel a bit vindicated, um, Tom, <laughs> that the focus groups are backing what you thought? I guess I do. Not that I want to discourage pushback in our Instagram comments. It's good to have debate, but it's not looking good for Labor. And it was interesting how he said that the sort of focus really shifts once the campaign's called, that it's a lot easier for an opposition leader in the preceding years to just chip in with criticism picked up by local media, but... Now people are asking what they stand for about their policies. There's so much 
more detail in the questions and a hungrier press pack from Canberra Mm -hmm. who were right across all that detail and the game really changes and as Phil said, it's it's not looking good for Labor. No, not at all. And interestingly, the paper will be running these focus groups again in the last week or in the week before the election. So, I mean, a lot can happen in a few weeks. So it'll be really interesting to see what they show then. Tomorrow on The Briefing, a really interesting extended interview with someone who's played golf with Donald Trump. I'm talking about Joe Hockey, the former treasurer and uh, Australian ambassador to the US. Um, He's divulged some fascinating details from his time in Washington and his thoughts on the current election. So that's in our Easter Friday episode tomorrow. Um, Have a wonderful weekend. A big thank you to the hardworking briefing team that make this podcast possible. We'll catch you next week. Listener.